Before we get into this episode, I'm pleased to announce that Mind Maladies is now partnered with the Alan Who Foundation. Be sure to check out their upcoming webinar on December 7th. This webinar will focus on the topic of sleep, specifically sleep in adolescence and how sleep can serve as an intervention for mental and physical health issues. The link to the Alan Who Foundation website and the link to register for the webinar is in the description of this episode. Hello, everyone. Today on the Mind Melodies podcast, we have a very special guest, um, Lauren Curran. Um, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Glad to be with you. I'm Lauren Curran, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University Medical Center. I'm now emeritus, but still active, still teaching, still conducting research in the field of OCD. And I got into the field of OCD in uh, 1989 when I started the Stanford OCD clinic in response to the problems of a a patient of mine who had Mm -hmm. OCD. And I had written to Eli Lilly, which made Prozac at that time, which was for depression, but it hadn't been released because I read what Prozac did chemically in the brain. And that seemed related to what a drug available in Europe did, which helped OCD. That drug was called anaphronol. And what Prozac and anaphronol both did was to increase levels of a neurotransmitter, a a chemical messenger in the brain called serotonin. So I wrote to Eli Lilly in about 1988, I guess, and said, you know, I have a patient with uh, OCD. Nothing has helped her. Could I get Prozac? from you on what's called a humane use protocol, which is where you get a drug that hasn't been released yet, but you get it for one patient only. Then they sent it to me and I gave mm-hmm. it to her. And lo and behold, she got much better. And I reported that back to Lily. Mm-hmm. And about six months later, somebody knocked on my door. At that time, I was running the medical psychiatric unit at Stanford Hospital, which I had started in 1980. And they said, we're going to do a study of a Prozac for OCD. Would you like to participate? And I said, sure, that's interesting. I haven't done something like that before. And so I participated in that study. And as a result of that, I began the OCD clinic at Stanford in 1989, which is continuing today under um, a, a physician who was one of my residents uh, shortly after that, Dr. Elias Abujan. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how Prozac um, actually helped OCD when it was known to right. just help depression. So how, can you explain a little bit how serotonin actually helps to counteract the effects of OCD? Sure. OCD, according to studies of the brain, which use what's called magnetic resonance imaging or PET scanning, which is positron emission tomography, where you give a patient a bit of a radioactive chemical, and you can mm-hmm. see how, which areas of the brain are, are more or less active. In OCD, certain areas of the brain are hyperactive compared to patients without OCD. And <clears throat> serotonin is a chemical messenger that quiets down hyperactive brain circuits. And so by increasing the release of serotonin from certain neurons, they communicate the message to the neurons downstream, quiet down. And that is what helps OCD. And mm. been seen, mm-hmm. the results that, of quieting down have been seen on these PET scans. Those, were, those PET scans were uh, very interestingly done in people who got Prozac 
in a study and people who got a, an effective form of psychotherapy called exposure and response prevention. And in both groups, exposure and response prevention group and the Prozac group, the areas of the brain that were hyperactive quieted down. And that was the first demonstration that psychotherapy, talk therapy affects brain function. So bringing it back to present day, what efforts are underway to improve the treatment of OCD and kind of revolutionize treatment? Well, other chemical messengers are thought to be involved in OCD besides serotonin now. One of them is called glutamate, which is an excitatory um, chemical messenger. And so people are looking at ways to block the effects of glutamate. One of them is a drug called ketamine, which was originally used for anesthesia. But there's some evidence that ketamine, by quieting down, by blocking the receptor for glutamate, may help OCD. And there are other glutamate blocking drugs that are being investigated to see if they may also help. And also, people are looking for combinations of medications uh, for people who don't get better from a single drug. For example, Prozac or drugs in the serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class, which is what it's in, help about any given one of them, helps about 50% of the people that you give it to. But it doesn't cure them, it just makes them better. If they don't get better, you can add second drugs and people are looking for second drugs to add to those, to increase the effectiveness. So you mentioned glutamate. So does its counterpart GABA also, could the GABA be involved in treatment to counteract the effects of OCD? Well, GABA is also a quieting down transmitter, mm-hmm. but the drugs that, are, that facilitate GABA don't seem to have much effect in OCD. They may reduce the anxiety, but they don't reduce the presence of obsessions mm-hmm. and obsessions are what drive the compulsions. Okay, now we can bring it back to OCD. So how would you describe OCD as a whole? What are some of the early signs and symptoms of OCD? It's important to know that one third of OCD cases begin between ages five and 15. One third begin between 15 or 16 and 25. And one third begin between 26 and 35. And in children, uh, there's some evidence that it can come on suddenly, that is overnight or over one or two days, in kids who've had an adverse reaction to a strep uh, infection. And these are called now PANDAs, the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Strep. That is a little controversial, but the evidence is stronger and stronger that that really does happen. In most people, it doesn't come on overnight, but in the kids, it can. It comes on over days or weeks, and it begins with having obsessions, which are intrusive thoughts that you don't want to have, that cause anxiety, that you experience as, quote, not me, but but they're there and they're bothering me. I feel I'm in danger. If I don't wash my hands, I might get sick from germs. If I don't check the lock 12 times, maybe the lock will be not checked, not locked and a burglar will get in. They're disturbing, anxiety-provoking thoughts called obsessions. And the thoughts lead to behaviors called compulsions to undo the thoughts or deal with the danger that the thoughts are warning the person is present. Usually the person knows these thoughts are irrational, but can't get Mm -hmm. rid of the anxiety without doing the compulsion. 
So you mentioned that a third of them are actually pretty young. Yeah. So how does the diagnosis look in these, especially in the young kids? Well, they can be, again, hand washing, checking that they did their homework right, or that if they made a mistake in writing down an arithmetic problem, they have to erase the whole problem because the page has to be absolutely clean. It can be having to say prayers over and over again because I might not have said them right. Uh, there are uh, maybe 30 different symptoms that uh, people with OCD have. So would a professional look for these symptoms and then have to diagnose them accordingly? Well, the professional wouldn't look for them. Usually the patient would come in and complain of them. Yeah. The patient's parents would come in and say, my child is doing the following things. And the diagnostic criteria are that you have obsessions, usually, but not always, have um, physical compulsions. As I said, the compulsions could be praying or repeating things in your head or, or just having to prayer, uh, having to say prayers correctly. Those wouldn't be visible. Um, the obsessions and compulsions have to occupy at least one hour a day. They have to interfere with your functioning, uh, social functioning or otherwise uh, tasks that you have to do in life. And uh, most people have insight into the fact that these are irrational, but over time, that insight can go away. And they may feel if I don't turn on the light switch 12 times, my grandfather will die. And, I, and that's really going to happen, so I better do it. So is there a known cause of OCD yet? And what are some potential factors that may cause OCD? Very rarely comes on from brain disease, but that is extremely rare. Otherwise, we don't know what causes it. We do know yeah. it runs in families. So roughly 1% to 2% of the general population have OCD in their lifetimes. But if you have a father or a mother or a brother or a sister uh, who has OCD, your chances of having it are not 1% to 2%, but 7 to 14%. Mm -hmm. And medical twins, it's about 60%. So there's something genetic. <clears throat> and they have identified some genes that seem to be related to the probability that you'll get OCD. But what those genes are doing exactly is not clear. So what are the statistics relating to gender? Like, do males have OCD more than females or vice versa? Uh, there are statistics related to gender. It turns out that boys are more likely to get it early in life than girls. But by the time you look at people who are, say, 20 to 25, the prevalence is equal in young men and young women. But boys tend to get it earlier, and the cases that come on early tend to be more severe. The, the disorder is more severe. So talking about severe OCD, there's a lot of portrayal of OCD in social media and shows, TV, whatnot. So what are some common misconceptions of OCD? I don't know what the misconceptions are. I know what, what the facts are, but I don't know what the misconceptions are. Mm -hmm. So like one example is yeah. um, people tend to think of germophobia as something that might be kind of OCD or like something that is really similar to OCD. So what's the distinction between OCD and germophobia? Well, fear of germs can be OCD. Mm -hmm. it, again, it depends on does it take an hour a day? Does it interfere with functioning? Does it interfere with one's life? That is a form of OCD. If, if the germophobia is limited to, well, I have to wash my hands twice instead of once, yeah. I wouldn't qualify for being OCD. 
So you mentioned that germophobia may be a kind of OCD. So are there any specific kinds of OCD? There used to be um, the feeling that hoarding, that is the inability to throw away things Mm -hmm. and accumulating things you don't use but can't get rid of, was OCD. It's now a separate disorder. It's called hoarding disorder. But OCD, generic OCD, comes in many, many flavors. As I mentioned, there are something like 30 different primary symptoms of OCD. And someone interested in finding that list can go to the web and put in a search for what are the symptoms of OCD, and they'll find a rating scale that would list maybe 30 different kinds of OCD, but commonly washing, checking, mm-hmm. counting, having to have everything in its place, exactly in its place, uh, lock checking, um, checking did I, if, while driving, if you go over a bump, did I run over somebody? All of those would be fairly common forms of OCD. So you briefly talked about how kids are actually getting OCD from a strep infection. There's been a lot of studies on this. So what's your opinion on this theory? Uh, my opinion is it's a real, it's a real problem that, that rarely children do get uh, OCD following strep infection. They can also get ticks like uh, what is called Tourette's syndrome and other um, mm-hmm neurological symptoms following strep. It's rare, but it's not unreal. It's real. Uh, do you know the cause of this? Is it something specific about the strain of strep that causes to our this? Knowledge. It's something specific about how your body reacts to having been infected with mm-hmm. strep. And there have been found antibodies against the strep that also attack certain areas of the brain. Uh, mildly. And it may be that the, the fact that your body makes a particular kind of antibody to fight the strep that your brain shares the antigen with is what, what leads to this, but nobody's ever proven that. Um, in society today, there's a lot of people that claim that like that triggers my OCD. It's a very common statement you'll hear when something is kind of bothering someone. Do you feel that this is good to decrease the stigma surrounding OCD if people openly talk about things that bother them and may cause their OCD or trigger their OCD? Well, a lot of people use the word, this is my OCD when they don't actually have the disorder. Yeah. So I'm not sure that uh, diminishes the... Do you think that's bad overall? I think it's a little misleading, but it's it's not terrible. It's just a little misleading. Do you think that offends people that actually have the disorder? No, I don't think they're offended. I... Okay, because I've heard people talk about like they shouldn't say that because it might lead people astray. Well, it may make people who have it say, you know, you're using that word, but I'm suffering. I, I'm yeah, suffering. exactly. And you're just talking about something that's minor and maybe. Mm-hmm. So it kind of diminishes their disorder. Because it's really affecting my life badly. Yeah. Um, so what should someone do if they actually are experiencing true symptoms of OCD? Well, of course, uh, seek treatment and education. Mm-hmm. Education is available on the web from the International OCD Foundation, iocdf.org. There's lots of information about what is OCD, how is it treated, the, how do I find someone who's expert in either prescribing medications for OCD or doing the specific kind of psychotherapy that helps so I rec- highly recommend people go to the IOCDF uh, website to find help. 
of course, they can talk with their treating physician who's not a psychiatrist. Not, do you know any psychiatrists who specialize or know a lot about OCD or how I can get help? Um, yeah, I agree. And I don't think people should necessarily be afraid to seek treatment out because in the long run, it will benefit them. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. What should someone do that someone with OCD do to kind of help themselves? Things they can do on their own. There are, as I said, the website, there are some yeah. books that are, are pretty good. Uh, one is called the OCD Workbook. Um, and again, uh, they get, another place where they can get information is the American Psychiatric Association has published treatment guidelines for OCD that are available on the web at the American Psychiatric Association website, apa.org. And as a matter of fact, I'm the first author of those treatment guidelines. Mm -hmm. In the guidelines, which are run about 40 pages, there's lots and lots of information about what is OCD, how is it treated, where are the resources that I can find in books or on the web to help myself, what drugs are used, how is psychotherapy done. I highly recommend that people seek out the uh, APA treatment guidelines. Totally. So what can anyone do at home that if they know a peer colleague that has OCD, what, how can they help them? Any words of affirmation or advice they can support, give? Support the person's uh, efforts to find treatment. And if they're mm -hmm. to do the work of, of getting better from OCD, for example, in this exposure and response prevention psychotherapy treatment, the person affected makes a list of say 10 obsessions and 10 compulsions. And then he rearranges, he or she rearranges that list to put the compulsion at the top of the list that if they didn't do it, that would bother them the least. It would be the easiest to resist. And at the bottom of the list, they put the compulsion that would be the hardest to, to resist doing. And then for one week, <clears throat> they make a commitment to resist that first compulsion because they'll find out as they resist it, the brain and the body learn, well, no, I resisted, nothing bad happened. So the brain learns to ignore that urge to do that particular compulsion and, and it becomes very, very mild and very easy to resist that one. And they move on to the next one working their way down through the list. So someone who is a friend might encourage the yeah. patient to do this kind mm -hmm. of work. So as a professional on OCD, what would your word of advice be to any listeners struggling with OCD right now? Seek help because this is a treatable yeah. disorder. Your life doesn't have to be as disrupted by OCD as it is without treatment. Mm -hmm. that's, that's actually fantastic advice. And I, I agree because a lot of people are still afraid to seek out treatment because of cultural reasons, parents, et cetera. So I think it's important to acknowledge that it is treatable and it is something real. Yes, certainly. And there are cultural biases against. Um, as a final question, I always ask my guests, how do you think we can decrease the stigma on OCD and mental disorders as a whole? By, by your own personal statements to friends about how mental illness of all kinds, depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, even schizophrenia, are common, they affect something like 30% of the American population. And these are not the person's fault mm -hmm. who has the illness. They're illnesses like pneumonia or cancer or tuberculosis. 
that affect people for reasons that are not well understood in this case. Yeah. And we should be supporting our, our friends and families who have these problems to deal with in any way that we can. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Um, that's all the questions I have for you today. Um, I, would, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and speaking to me and my listeners. I hope someone learned from this and someone can make an impact from this. Jashin, you're doing a great thing by making more information available to the public. So. Yeah, that's the goal. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check out the link in the description to the Mind Maladies website. See you guys in the next episode.